This is Travel Wise, the travel podcast for growth-hungry entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore travel, continuous learning, and the psychology of flow. Ready for takeoff? Ask me why. Welcome, everybody, to 52 Living Ideas. We are almost at the midway point of this book that we have been exploring here, The Evolving Self by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. This is a sequel to the Flow book. And if you've been with us for some of our previous meetings, you're going to find that uh, Marissa and I decided to go rogue this meeting and come up with a completely different format and strategy for this meeting because we both thought that the ending section of this book where MC gives out his further thoughts and asks some really interesting questions. We both agreed that that was the most interesting part of the chapter. So instead of giving a presentation and doing small breakout groups, what we are going to do is just go through these further thoughts and as a whole group here, kind of go through some of these really interesting questions that he brings up. And then hopefully we should still have some time at the end for any questions that you all might want to ask either maybe about this chapter directly about the book um, or about what we we talk about in our discussion today. Um, Maritza, did you just want to share some thoughts though um, you had about the chapter before we get started here? Yes, um, just for the sake of a little tiny bit of consistency, I would like to remind you guys again of how Mihal um, Miheli defines flow. He defines flow as the state in which People are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience itself is so enjoyable that people will do it even at great cost. Flow is when you're so invested in a project that you lose track of time when you feel in the zone. So that was what this book is following. This is the sequel. And so we're looking and exploring the evolutionary path towards the inner self if we're looking at self as consciousness. And what we're trying to do is that the best way to improve our opportunities for entering into flow states is by finding a way to wrangle our consciousness and take a little more control over it. So that's the premise that we're moving forward from. So um, as I um, shared with uh, Joya a little bit ago, I really struggled with this chapter. I found um, it to be just so far, it's, it's my least favorite. And so let me first explain to you a little bit about what we're talking here. The, the title of this chapter, we're looking at chapter four, it's called Predators and Parasites. And in each section, we're introduced to different types of predators and parasites that are perceived by the author to be almost inevitable facts of our evolutionary path as human beings but not just as human beings. He shows how they exist within other um, societies and organisms as as such. Um, I do, part of the struggle with the chapter is that it's kind of like doom and gloom overload. It's just you're piled on in each section. It's like stack upon stack of all the ways in which you are not in control of yourself, your life, or your consciousness. So it's kind of really, it's also a very difficult read for that reason. But the nice thing is that we know that the first five chapters, that's kind of what he's doing. He's presenting for us all the doom and gloom. And we're hoping as we get to the second part of the book, 
which we're almost at, he's gonna start presenting us some solutions, some possible ways forward and around all of these pitfalls that are part of the human being evolutionary path. Um, so we talk here about the idea of, um, you know, the concept of survival of the fittest and how that may or may not affect us. We talk about different power um, structures, class structures, um, different types of exploitation, both conscious and subconscious, um, well-intentioned, not well-intentioned. We speak about um, it, differences in power, differences in equality and inequality. And we speak about um, exploitation. And it also he talks about um, responsibility and irresponsibility, which is a, it's a really interesting thing. So those are just, that's just a very high level um, little synopsis here for you. And we're gonna get into those using this, his section, the further thoughts on predators and parasites. If you guys have the book, it's at the end of chapter four that we're looking at here. Um, and we just felt that these were thought provoking, so thought provoking that we really thought it would be very beneficial for us to go through the thought provoking aspects of this concept of predators and parasites that are affecting our control of ourselves and our lives, as opposed to going through slide by slide and regurgitating all of this very serious and difficult um, pitfalls that we already read in the book. Um, so, okay, I'm gonna turn it over to Joya and let her run with it. Yeah, I'll just jump in and say before we get started here too, that like when I started getting into this chapter, I was almost surprised that the editor of the book let MC get away with the structure of the book. I, I, like Maritz and I are both reading this with you all for the first time. And I have to say, you know, for a book that's supposed to be the sequel of Flow, besides the discussion of Flow we had at the very beginning, we've just been like slogging through all of these chapters. And it is, as Maritz said, it is. It's all just the doom and gloom. It's all of the problems. It's all of the things that prevent us from getting into Flow. And I sort of understand why maybe that makes sense, but it also makes it a very difficult read. But the good news is- doesn't flow. We, no, exactly. It, it, it's almost, uh, you know, we're, we're falling into the, the problems of anxiety and boredom and not being in the flow channels. You know, oh, you'd almost thought maybe even MC would have had a, a glimpse into thinking about how to structure this book in a better way. The good news is though, we only have one more of the chapters left in, in the, the do and gloom section of the book. And then we're going to get into the more- solutions focused and flow focused chapters. So let's just start here with, with some of these questions. And so um, if you've been reading the book with us, you'll know that MC with all of these chapters breaks them down into certain subsections. So he's got questions with different subsections. And then Marissa and I just went through and tried to pull out some of the questions that we thought might lead to the most interesting discussions here with our group. So the first question comes from the first section, which was all about the forces of selection. And the question here says, for most people, a central concern in life is the fear of oblivion after death. For that reason, the ability to leave some legacy to the future is an important component of their peace of mind. Is it for you? And what do you consider more important to leave behind? A memory of yourself and your accomplishments? Children who will carry on your biological blueprint? Or values that might help 
influence how future generations act and think? And maybe none of those or all of them or even something different. So I know I have some thoughts about that, but I'll turn it, I think, over to the group first, if any of you would like to share your thoughts about um, how you might deal with the fear of oblivion after death. Yeah, can I chip in? Yeah, go right ahead. Yep, go ahead, DLJ, yep. All right, I'm gonna gonna quote Lord of the Rings again. (laughs) So the kind of point of the book is uh, a line near the end uh, where uh, Frodo is leaving and Sam is upset and Frodo says, we set out to save the Shire and we did save it, but not for me. So that's, it's all about legacy. Um, so I can relate to that very much. I'm, I'm doing my legacy project, which is a, well, I won't go into it, but it's my, the thing I want to leave to the world after I go, but it's not anything to do with the fear of death. It's simply just the recognition that I won't be here forever but I don't think that's equatable necessarily to a fear of death. So I'm not sure I entirely agree with the premise. No, I, I think I think that's totally fair too. Uh, it was one of the, the problems I had already with this chapter that um, it, there is a way in which as human beings, you know, we're perhaps unique among species in actually being aware of the fact that we will die someday. And certainly that awareness uh, can and does play a role for, for many people, but it doesn't necessarily have to play a role in your thinking. And I agree too that I, I also, you know, start thinking about my legacy, but it doesn't necessarily come from a, a fear of death. Like personally, my own beliefs um, are, you know, I, I don't have any beliefs of an afterlife. So I don't really have anything to fear after death. So it's more for me just thinking about what are my values here on earth and what can I do right now while I'm alive to contribute to those values. And then precisely because, you know, as human beings, we have this conceptual consciousness that can understand and grasp beyond just the immediate moment. I have that awareness of there is going to be life going on once I am gone. And what can I do to make sure that the things that I care about can continue on even after I'm gone? Yeah. So it looks like Sharon here uh, has something to contribute and everyone Wait. else. We have a small group Wait, tonight. You had, um, James, James, and then oh, James Sharon. first. Sorry. Okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. James first, then Sharon. Oh, I see James. Sorry, first. Sharon. Yeah. I was, I was uh, just going to say that we have a small group, so it, we should be able to get everyone in. So. Cool. Yeah. So anyway, I just uh, I, I agree with you. I think uh, that it's uh, it's uh, we always have something that we're we're doing. We're uh, this is what we do. It's like uh, we're always uh, we're doers, and uh, uh, there's this uh, thing type of people: uh, do-it-yourselfer, uh, follower, leader. Uh, it's always it's always some active person. Uh, that's that's how we define ourselves. We don't define the one that we don't define ourselves as the one who's worried about death usually. Uh, but you can make a speech about it. It's it, you'd write a book about it or something like that. But but it's not uh, it's not uh, what we care about. What we care about is always the next thing. And uh, uh, he's got a lot on his plate. She has you know she's 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 she she has a lot of uh, cares so it's 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 really um it's really uh the uh the normal life is is not this uh, kind of buddhist life that uh, uh i think the author is talking about it's the uh it's the uh it's the worldly life and uh, the worldly life involves uh caring and caring for others 
caring for things that need taken care of. So, um, uh, so I sort of like uh, his philosophy is a little bit drooping, droopy at this point. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, James. Uh, Sharon is up next. Yeah, so I I have a different view. Um, I don't think we cease to exist. I think we cease to physically exist. And maybe I'm not sure about this, but I I somehow believe that we still have an impact. But I think that I want to do something that's significant. When we talk about legacy, I get a little tripped up with that because time marches on and life changes and what might be relevant today as a legacy passes. You know, there's very few things, for instance, what our forefathers did to create the United States that have lasting effects for hundreds and hundreds of years. So when I think about legacy, I don't really think about something that maybe I'll be involved with something that has perpetual lasting effects. But more than, more than that, I want to fulfill a purpose. Why did I come onto earth at this time? And, and I think it will be specifically relevant to the times of today. So that's kind of the way I think about it. But it would be great if I wound up doing something so significant that it did kind of change the world in a permanent way. Yeah. So um, I'd like to chime in here for a minute. So my thoughts on the idea of legacy center on how to view a legacy of a people, not a legacy of myself as an individual. As somebody who does not have children, so I have no progeny to um, leave anything to, and I, and I don't have any desire to do so. So that, you know, but I see in my family, I see the legacy. Like I have, you know, I have a, an aunt who has 10 children and the stamp is so fierce. You can, the genetic stamp rings so true from our side of the family, despite the fact that it's, you know, they're married. It's all the same, same parents for both of them, but you just, the stamp, my, my family's legacy, you can see it. To me, I see the genetic traits. Um, so when I, I, looking at, considering the idea of forces of selection, and some of the manners in which this, this section was written by MC, I was wondering about what we as a society would potentially leave as legacy if we're considering this natural selection concept. And, you know, my, I was, so he brings up, this is the section in which he brings up the word memes. So I would just like to point out for those of you who maybe didn't get a chance to read the book, if you hear us speaking about memes, we're not talking about smiley emojis or whatever those cool kids are doing online, of which I am so not one. But the when he says memes, he's talking a cultural norm. That's the equivalent um, phrase that he used. So if you hear us use that, that's what we mean. Um, and that is fascinating to me. We're going to get into that next chapter, so I won't delve too much into it. But I, I think that the way to tie this a little bit into the concept of flow is that if what we're trying to do is find ourselves in that sweet spot, right? We want to be more often in the flow state. Somehow our legacy has to be tied to that flow channel, that flow state. 
So if your legacy is, you know, um, DLJ was talking about, you know, his, his legacy project, so that should exist along that channel, at least, you know, majority parts of it, if it's your life. So at least that's my thinking. Like if we find something, if we can find something that we view as legacy that also aligns with walking that meaningful path, well, then the legacy will almost resolve itself, will it not? My two cents. Oh, DLJ, go right ahead. Well, if you're, if you're looking at it in, in that sense, then you've probably got to think post-human, haven't you? You've always got to be thinking, um, what is it that we can pass on to the next species who's going to become sentient after we wiped ourselves out in the next few years? I don't know if I would go that drastic. Because if well, I were a scientist and I figured out a way to turn, um, you know, salinated water into fresh water, I can leave that legacy today. And if I really enjoy that creation process, it's, it still leaves me in the realm of today. It doesn't force me to be in the realm of the ephemeral of the future. Just a thought. Okay. Right. Any more thoughts about legacy? And you can always feel free to, you know, jump in and, and you know, pick up any of these discussion threads as we go on. Otherwise, we'll jump to the next section. Oh, wait, Marco has something to say. Then we will jump to the next section, which is going to be all about power and oppression. I know, doom and gloom topics all day today. Um, I was kind of all thinking like, sort of, maybe as mentioned, but like uh, being the best that we probably can not exactly like creating anything but just you know being um best person as like an example for for others i guess yeah thank you, you know i think that is another way to think about legacy too all right anton next and then we'll get to power and oppression yeah i, I know i just got in right last um and, and like thinking about like some of my own perspectives and as well as what people said, it's um, I like with a lot of things, I feel conflicted about the concept of legacy because on one hand, there is the more modest, but at the same time, maybe more significant than I realize focusing on what's personally important to myself or anyone doing that. And then, um, and then possibly just connecting with a small group of people or connecting with a person. And that's important to me, but you know, that's not typically what we think of when we think legacy. And then when we think legacy, um, it, it could be to the extent like what Sharon was saying of something that's lasting many different years or just something that's lasting beyond your lifetime. And I think it is possible, but like I'm conflicted, like what, because I know that there is a superficial version of legacy. Like you feel a need for, what I mean by that is like you feel a need for permanence or something beyond your life in order to validate yourself. And I don't wanna get stuck in that. So that's my confliction, if that makes any sense, yeah. 
No, thank you. And I think, and thank you for tying that back even to the beginning, because I think you're right. That that's where maybe legacy can go wrong when people do have you know, too much of a fear of death and they're letting that obsession with death determine what their current actions are. And that can obviously be problematic and you don't want that view of legacy. All right. So now we're going to switch to the wonderful topic of power and oppression. So the first question we have here uh, says, traditionally, people have been oppressed by political leaders who control behavior, administrators who keep exacting taxes, employers who use psychic energy without giving adequate remuneration, and patriarchs who rule families with iron fists. In which aspect of your life, if any, do you feel exploited by some powerful person or institution, and what can you do about it? Honestly, the last question was the one that I thought was the most interesting, um, which is the, the what can you do about it question. But uh, I'll be curious to hear what you guys think about this question. Can you oh, give me the folks. questions again? Sorry? Can you give me the questions again? I was thinking of the first one, I'll ask the second two. Yeah, so the question was, um, in which aspect of your life, if any, do you feel exploited by some powerful person or institution? And then the second question was, uh, what can you do about it? Uh, While you guys are gathering your thoughts very quickly, I'm going to, I want to talk a, for a moment about the concept of psychic energy, because that comes up in this section. And so MC tells us that oppression is a condition in which the psychic energy of one person is controlled by another against his or her will. To a certain extent, we all have to do things we don't like because someone more powerful than us wants us to do them. And the whole, you know, we, we hope that in most situations we're doing something that we hope to derive some future benefit from alienating our own psychic energy in, in the present. So we're hoping to get a future benefit. But that's this concept of psychic energy is kind of what we're exploring here because what he's saying is, you know, if as a conservation tool for psychic energy, people exploit others because then they don't have to use their own energy. All right, James. Yeah, I'm um, I'm not uh, one to uh, necessarily feel like people are kind of like. Uh, sucking out uh, psychic energy. I, uh, I'm more or less in the physical, I kind of like, I like operating in the, uh, my, within the sphere of my own interests and so forth. Uh, and I know there's exploitative, exploitative people in that, you know, and you sort of like, uh, I'm familiar like with that work, you know, like building little walls sometimes or uh, just choosing who you associate with those kinds of things. Uh, but uh, the, uh, but, but uh, as far as like being, like things getting out of control, things not being in my hand, they're like owned by the government or they're owned by other institutions. That's basically all the time. I'm a completely dissident person. I don't, I don't go along with what the government does. I don't necessarily enjoy all aspects of society as they exist, but I'm not a complainer. I sort of like, uh, I sort of like go along with it, with it. I don't necessarily feel I have um, the ability or the right to do everything. That would be good. That's kind of like this uh, childish idea of um, 
uh, I'm going to run the world someday, you know, from that, uh, what was that? Uh, there, was a, there was a cartoon series about that um, that I exposed my kids to. I didn't watch all of them, but uh, it was by Steven Spielberg, was the producer of it. I forget the name of it. But uh, the, the, the idea that there's a, uh, a drive, and there were a couple of cartoons like that, you know, with characters that would kind of control, uh, try to control everything using their mental abilities. And it's a, it's a brilliant idea, and it's kind of like uh, it's a good it's it's a good antidote. All of these kind of things, all kinds of philosophies, are good antidotes to powerlessness. In other words, uh, if you feel like you're left powerless by your oppressive government or by advertising, uh, or uh, you know the uh, the corporate masters, I mean, or or even just cruel educators, they exist, right? So, so the, you, 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 you always have those kind of like uh, philosophies, even this sort of like watered down Buddhism, I think that uh, uh, Chizitsky is kind of like uh, presenting. So, um, Chizitsky, sorry. So, so it's, um, yeah, so I, so I think that, uh, uh, yeah, it, 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 it does have a lot to do with your frame of mind, but it doesn't stop you from doing what you do. In other words, I do what I do, you know, whether it's studying things or uh, uh, writing or any of the things that I love to do. And I do those uh, by, by ba basically building a wall. I have my own dwelling. I don't have to worry about uh, what the government thinks, even if they think about everything differently than the way I do. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, James. And I love how even in that you've incorporated a lot of the solutions. So the what can you do, um, you know, the way you've talked about, um, you know, just having that control over your own mind, uh, you know, what you're reading, what you're studying, um, you know, taking control over who you associate with. I mean, these are all you know, great strategies of what you can do. Obviously, like pursuing work, it sounds like, and hobbies that allow you to follow your interests and, you know, as you put it to as, as much as you can, uh, kind of, you know, build a wall um, against, uh, you know, outside force, forces that might feel oppressive or exploitative. Uh, looks like Gretchen has something to add here to this, this part of the conversation. Right. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I, I guess I was thinking about along the two things. The two questions uh, and what to do about it would be, I think, in my case, psychic energy can just be like mental uh, influence and energy, uh, not necessarily, and, um, and it, it can come in all sorts of forms, like mental, you know, oppression, whatever it is, that energy, the strength, um, uh, uh, you know, that you have or the power over someone else, uh, that they're not... Um, that they don't like. Um, and, you know, this can, I think, come in um, obviously many forms, uh, everything from uh, from parental, um, you know, um, maybe narcissism or whatever, even over children, uh, their children, things like this. Um, and I think no matter what the situation or what the, what the thing is, is to gather more power than what the the uh, the pressure the power is of those you know um, that are putting those limitations on you and you know and so I would think you know that can be 
done, I think, in a numerous ways by education, by, um, by joining forces with people to create that bigger energy. Um, those are just a couple of my thoughts. So, thanks. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Gretchen. And, and you reminded me, I, I should have probably pointed out um, when MC uses the phrase psychic energy, this is one of his uh, pet phrases that he uses again and again, and he has a very specific meaning. So he's always talking about our mental energy and specifically he's always focusing on attention. But I think what you're saying is perfectly in line with that. And I love your solution, which is that we should become more powerful in how uh, you know we, we develop and use and build up our mental energy and our attention. So yeah, I, I love all those suggestions. Thank you. Uh, right, Sharon has something to say next. Yeah, so my, my knee-jerk reaction to that question was I'm at more of the voluntary part of my life where I'm not working for pay, so the things I do, I choose to do, but the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, there's probably, I, I, I really liked this chapter because I think it illuminated some things that are subtle, that you, when you grow up in different periods of your life, in different stages uh, in the culture. He talked a little bit about the culture. And I think there are just some things that I was, I don't wanna say programmed, but that were memes that were part of my upbringing. For instance, women in the fifties, they didn't really work and it just became the norm and you never questioned it. And it sort of became part of your psyche to not even think about it in, in a way that you wanted to fight against it or think that it was, something you should do. It's just kind of ingrained. So I think there's part of that at the time I grew up, some of those limitations were just accepted and I never really questioned them. And, um, but I do think there are some things people talk about the government or when I travel maybe out of other, into other countries, uh, you can really feel the difference, the gender differences and and that sort of thing. And there are limitations that are put on me, but as I, I don't remember who said it, but what, what I tend to do is just reduce the amount of time that I'm exposed to that and take whatever amount of control I can. So for instance, in America, when something's happening that I can feel is very limiting or oppressive, I just, I, I have the luxury of being able to remove myself from the situation or just not tune into it. So it's just, a, it's really my life at this time. But I do notice when I'm traveling, you don't really have those options. I've seen people at customs, you know, get treated certain ways and you just have to accept it and move through it almost. Amazing comments, guys. All of you, everyone who's commented, I'm just fascinated. I, I wanna follow a, a thread that Sharon presented to us. Um, you you um, preface several of your comments by saying you have a luxury of removing yourself. So I would like to say, what do we do or how, how would we answer this question? If we, because all of us, we're sitting here, we have the luxury of free time of a safe enough societal environment where we can just sit and have a, a discussion on a lovely evening. We're not working at this moment. And if you are, yay, thanks for being here. But we do, all of us enjoy a certain amount of um, freedom 
that many others may not have the, the fortune to do so. They would not have the ability to be sitting here with us today because of different circumstances. Maybe they have too many mouths to feed, so they need three jobs or, you know, or they don't currently have internet because they couldn't afford it, or they're in some place where, you know, they're getting bombed or so. So how do we consider this question from the perspective of being in a situation we cannot remove ourselves from? Would anybody care to comment on, on that? I think that was kind of where I was talking about is unification. So joining forces, um, like um, Black Lives Matter, like, and even whether you're like, I'm not black, but I believe in that. And so, you know, gathering people and supporters of you. Um, so like, if we take a modern example, you know, so like I took place, I took, uh, um, part in marches and things like that. Um, but but they have made their, um, so communication and letting people know, um, I think is very good. We have a voice, um, regardless, we have a voice. Everyone has a voice, whether it's heard or not, people will can hear it. Um, and like in the situation with Ukraine, uh, which is horrible, they are reaching out to, um, to other countries and saying, we, we need your energy. You know, we need your, your psyche. We need your, your mental and your, you know, your assistance. And um, I guess joining forces um, would be the answer for that to me. Sorry, that's, I don't know if I got off topic, but. No, I think that 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 is a you know, and and again, and I like how you're reiterating the answer that that is one of the things you can do. I was going to answer even just by turning more toward the internal. To me, these are the I always see these as the lessons of stoicism, the lessons of thinking about what is in your control and what's not in your control, and then starting to pay attention to what is in your control. But often stoicism, you know pure or real traditional stoicism would even have you start to turn your back on the world. So I love how Gretchen's even kind of providing solutions for how we can actually uh, have engagement and impact in the world, uh, perhaps by you know, joining forces with others that that, that does give us you know, more, more power in the world. Uh, yeah. Um, and I think this even leads us into the next question here, uh, which says- I, I think oh, more, Sharon more, raised her hand again, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, I, I missed that. Sorry, Sharon. You first, yep. and then we'll lead into the next question. And I and I know I come. I've been on Fifty Two Living Ideas, where I brought this up before, but it's been it's obviously something that has stuck with me, and that is the Viktor Frankl example. Um, that to me, I, I still don't know how he was able to do it. It's, it, it. I hope everyone's familiar with that. He was the Jew that um, wrote the book, and and somehow, because that is for me one of the worst experiences I think any human being would be forced to go through because individually, but then also watching other humans maybe, you know, shrink down to nothing and be abused and just the horrors of that. And somehow, you know, he found a search for me, it's called search for meaning and he found meaning in it that was almost aspirational. So, and I think that dovetails into the book we're studying, one, one statement constantly comes back into my mind 
from this book, and that is the mind left to its own, you know, left unoccupied will go chaotic. And it's really stopped me over the last several weeks that we've been studying this. I'll notice that I've gone off thinking about, and I'm like, that's right, the mind left. And it's really helping me to to change the way I think on a daily basis. But the Viktor Frankl, I think, is another way to, to deal with that. I don't know how he did it. I've read that book, but it's incredible focus and reframing of, of what's going on. Oh, and thank you for sharing the, the Viktor Frankl example. That, that's a really personal one for me. So I'm a big believer in creating your own personal rituals and holidays. And so one holiday I celebrate every year that I will recommend to you all because it's coming up. It's March 26th is Viktor Frankl's birthday. So every year on March 26th, I read that opening section of Man's Search for Meaning. It's the part where he describes his experience in, in the concentration camps. And, and similar to what you're saying, Sharon, like, I read it every year and every year I have that experience of like, how, how did he possibly get through it? And, and there's one point that grabs me every single time that he, he's been in the camp. It's already, um, you know, like 1944. So, you know, the war has been going on for years. Like people have been trapped in the concentration camp for years. And he gives up to give this speech telling people essentially like, well, we have so much that we can be grateful for. And every time, every time I read that, you know, it just like, you're literally living through what is you know objectively one of the worst possible human experiences ever. You know, there, there's no human being who perhaps had more reason to think that it couldn't possibly get any worse. Um, and yet, you know, he he's able to find the meaning and find the purpose and and find the gratitude and and, and build that resilience to to get out. So so for everyone, if, if you want to join me in in uh, celebrating Victor Frankl Day on March 26th, it's coming up soon. I, and but I think this will lead us to the next question, which is um, you know maybe thinking about people who don't have um, what some here have called the luxury of of being able to to change some of their outward circumstances. So this question says, those of us who are born in the technologically advanced first world automatically inherit advantages that are envied and resented by many third world natives who feel exploited by us. Their trees go to make our furniture, their air is fouled by our emissions, they are forced to trade non-renewable raw materials and labor for cheap manufactured products. Do we have any responsibility to ameliorate this state of affairs? And if yes, what can you do about it? Any thoughts about that question? So again, it's, um, you know, do we have any responsibility to ameliorate the fact that, uh, you know, people who were born in the third world, uh, you know, don't don't have the luxuries that those of us who were born in the first world have. Um, and if you believe we do have responsibility, what, what to do about it? All right, so James here has something to say first. Yeah, just to start off, I think uh, we have a responsibility not to judge. Uh, we have a responsibility to trade freely, to, uh, to take advantage of uh, the, uh, what, what those uh, nations and uh, cultures have to offer us. Uh, and we have a, a, a responsibility to be open-minded about uh, possibly uh, even uh, visiting uh, those places and uh, learning their languages and, um, uh, you know, interchange uh, ideas with those cultures, which is easier nowadays with the internet and, uh, uh, you know, and the, uh, the switch to standard English. So uh, I think uh, the, uh, but, but it's, uh, it, it, uh, there, there's a lot of possibilities for being a uh, international 
an international a person with international goals, a person that wants to uh, uh, level the playing field with uh, developing countries. And uh, in a certain sense, we might be able to influence political parties, but uh, it's really hard. I think in the United States, it's kind of hard to south of south of uh, the the example that was given before. Uh, uh, Black Lives Matter. I mean, that was really hard to get across. I mean, we had black militants that was tried for a while. Uh, we did have Martin Luther King that worked in its time. Um, you know, and unionism was a positive force in uh, trying to equal the playing field in the United States culturally. But uh, the same thing can be done internationally and it takes an open mind and a uh, political approach uh, towards uh, towards uh, having free trade, uh, not punishing people for being different, uh, and all those bad attitudes that a lot of uh, uh, politicians have, unfortunately, so. Yeah, thank you, James. And I, I would totally agree with that. I, I, you know, I'll share, you know, I think your idea of visiting other cultures, that, that's definitely been hugely helpful for me even to develop empathy, to even start to understand things from other people's perspectives. And I love your suggestion too, to really focus on trade, to focus on the voluntary relationships and the ways that we can exchange value with others and doing so on, on their terms, you know, trying to have that open mind to appreciate what their values are, even though those values might be different from what your values are. Uh, it looks like Anton has something to, to add to this conversation next. Yeah, there's um, it it, it uh, I, I realize like like what has been mentioned before by one or two other people. Like it it I guess it depends on how political you want to get, but with some of this, because some of it is, um. But I think like a lot of times I think in broader ideas anyway. I I, I think it's important to be able to see things. I, I think that there are political issues, but like like kind of the broader idea of humanity. Is, is kind of what people are saying right now and to be able to see humanity extended beyond my American uh, because you know I'm born and raised American and uh, and I do realize how fortunate I am when I think of us certain things. I have certain strange experiences. I, I um, actually host a group myself um, and we talk about different topics, philosophy, politics, different things. But uh, a couple of people who showed up to my group have been from Algeria and i don't know how that happened <laughs> but it's but it's, it's awesome uh and, and that's one of the things that interests me and in being able to that that's i haven't like uh, there's something i'm going to say like pretty soon about like a, uh, aside from being in america and born and raised in america and uh both parents in my life and various things about my circumstances that are different than a lot of people but like uh the two algerians that i talked to like i'm finding out more about their own experience as i talk to them and both of them are interested in hearing like what my american perspective is and it's nice to have that um and they're uh, one of them is kind of like a kid in a candy store when he talks to me <laughs> i'm like well I'm an oddball in certain ways, so I'm not <laughs> representative of the average American in certain ways, but I am at the same time. I'm a combination of, of uh, um, a product of my circumstances in some regards and then not in other regards. But what I was uh, going to say, though, is um, when I was a teenager, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Japan, and I'm reminded of something you were just saying, Joya, about like that 
I didn't go there in order to open my mind. I was, I'm interested in Japanese or certain Asian culture, but, but it did open my mind uh, when I went to Japan. And, and I, I've heard certain people say that before, that if you travel or if you have experiences out of the country, it can, it can show you certain things. And, and I think that is true. Um, I, you know, there's like, I think that there's people who can have good intentions and many people do, but a lot of times with political uh, self-righteousness or various things that happen, it, it does end up in part polluting some of these good intentions. So that's what I'm thinking right now is, you know, there's that tension in between those two things in my mind. So uh, that's what I have to say. Those are some thoughts I have. I would like to jump, jump in here. Um, first, Anson, I'd like to say that, um, you know, that's topic. What you're just saying is so near and dear to my and Joya and possibly even more Joya's uh, hearts, the concept of um, how vital it is for our emotional, physical, mental expansion travel is. Um, so, you know, if I were to be looking at this question and answering it, you know, what can you do about it? I really think that the key is what everyone who's spoken has already touched upon the idea that let's change ourselves. Let's become aware that everyone is not like me. And I really think that is the first step. Sure, it may seem like a baby step, but without it, you can't take the rest of the steps. So we need that. That's what we can do about it. And what is our responsibility is to always seek for another story. If we keep foremost in our mind, the fact that there's never just one story, there's never just one perspective, then we go a long ways towards not lumping people in one category and then like beating them with a hammer because we think they're all like this. If we can remember there's more than one perspective, I think that that would be the best way to try to tackle this question. I see Gretchen, sorry, go ahead. That's okay. Um, I just was thinking that, um, like you say, I mean, a responsibility to continue to explore, but then I have to say our own psyche, we have to make, I believe, whatever we do in the pursuit of power has to fit our own psyche. Otherwise we're becoming exactly the same as those who are putting their psychic power, you know, or their psychic power over us. So that's just, I guess what I was thinking is we have to all look at our individual psyche and, uh, and have whatever we do fit within that with the caveat of never thinking that you're always right or that you know everything. I, I think that that's exactly right. I think it, that just even ties in with what everyone else has been saying. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that, Gretchen. So we're already even coming up on the hour. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. We're going to skip over some of the sections. Um, and th there were a lot of different sections in this chapter, but we're going to skip to the section that is about the transmission of inequality. This is, I think, a, a potentially really interesting question. Lisa Marissa and I thought it was interesting. So maybe the two of us will have a lot to say about this one, not even if uh, the rest of you don't. But this question says, is it right for parents to be able to pass on unearned power, e.g. property, money, status to their children? 
At what point does the need to enhance oneself through one's descendants begin to conflict with the common welfare? Is evolution better served by polarization of power, i.e. letting the rich get richer and the poor poorer, or by a reshuffling of power in each generation? So again, the question is, is evolution better served by the polarization of power, the rich getting richer, poor getting poorer, or by reshuffling power in each generation? So maybe Marissa, if you don't mind, maybe um, jumping in on this one, because I know, I know you had some thoughts about this question. Okay, so um, this is one where I feel like I, could, I, I can speak to both sides. Either I can vehemently root for yes or vehemently root for no. And so what I see here is, um, so I, I'm gonna read a little, little bit here from this section here, the transmission of inequality. MC tells us that real inequality and the attendant feelings of envy and jealousy come about when the elements of power begin to be passed on through cultural inheritance. And what, when Joya and I spoke about this a little, this briefly a little earlier, what we identified was that what so often happens is that one must work very hard to gain the status and power and, and inheritance that now one will pass on to one's offspring. But then we give them that and forget to also pass on to them that strength of inner core that caused you to work hard and to mass amounts and save and have a worth ethic. And so then the, the person that to whom you've bequeathed this inheritance doesn't have the same values you have. So, but now they have this massive amount of power to wield in their society without the same value set. How do we mitigate this? Because even if it's not true, even if you yourself instill in your child the same or similar values as you have, and along with it, this lump sum of money, at some point it will degrade because the, the life experiences that led you to those values are not the ones experienced by your offspring. And so the inheritance affords them a different life. So the values they leave to their future offspring. Now, so it's the, it's almost like it's a, it's a cycle of degradation. And it, it's like, if one thinks about um, depreciation in a piece of equipment, you know, if you're doing finances, you subtract a certain amount of money year to year because you assume that there will be degradation. But we don't assume any decay in values from generation to generation when we're calculating different levels of effort required. Because even in the idea of technology, if you don't have a big inheritance to leave your offspring, collectively we, the collective we of society is still leaving the inheritance of a more technologically advanced world but we're not necessarily providing them with the strength, of, the, the strength of self or core needed to wield it responsibly. At least that's my perspective. So, so that's, so, but then I feel like someone who worked very hard and amassed this fortune should not be penalized. So you can't just say, oh, well, you know, they've got to give it to everyone. 
because I don't see why would one bother to work hard and have a good work ethic if it was going to be taken away from them. So, like I said, I don't quite, I think the real answer is I would say neither yes nor no, but um, I could, I think I could discuss either side. And um, so I really look forward to hearing what several of you have to say. Looking here, I have James, Anton, Gretchen, and then DLJ. Yeah. Okay, thanks. I, it sounds just a little bit like uh, imposter syndrome. Uh, or I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about uh, like uh, we all have like groups uh, that we participate in, you know, and there's always someone who doesn't really uh, share as much, you know, there's always uh, somebody that's bound to sort of have imposter syndrome. And when you're talking about this uh, inheritance, so in other words, I'm the king, right? That they're in an, in an African tribe. There's, there's a, I think at least in some cases, there's a king, right? In, at least in a, uh, uh, so there's, there's this, maybe I saw too many movies, I don't know. But so you might have a king and uh, in, in some culture. And, and this uh, king has a son, right? The firstborn that we learned about in the Bible. So the firstborn uh, gets the, uh, gets the, um, is supposed to be, the next king, right? Uh, but what if the firstborn um, doesn't really deserve to be the next king? You know, isn't isn't he going to have a problem? Isn't he going to have a little imposter syndrome? Isn't he, if he actually gets the job, or if he um, if it comes time for him to take the job, aren't the people in the tribe going to be looking around at each other to see where the next king? that should be king instead of the eldest son uh, should be. So, so I think, I, I, I don't think the problem is with rank. Um, and I generally don't think it's with wealth because I've seen groups of wealthy people and there's, there's idiots in every group. I'm sorry, you know, that, you know, among people that are really the leaders of corporations or, um, uh, on boards of, uh, there's always some that don't, you'd think wouldn't really belong there, you know, but they're there, right? So they're not all perfect. They're not all um, Charles Mungers and uh, who's that guy from Nebraska? They're not all uh, 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 Bill Gates. They're not all like uh, super, uh, Bill Gates has limitations, you know, as we all know, but, you know, they're not all kind of like running on forced, you know, on eight cylinders. So, uh, and, but the thing is, is that they, many of them contribute, you know, and, and, and that's the idea is that we, in society, people contribute. They have, a, they have a role to play, even if it's to sit back and learn and support the others. So, so I think that that happens in every kind of level and group of people. Uh, I, I just wanna mention one fact, uh, maybe, I think it's very little known. In the Soviet Union, there were um, a divisions of salaries. There was an algorithm for fi fi figuring out people's salaries. And the people with the highest salaries uh, made 11 times more than the people at the bottom level. That's a very little known fact. We don't, not very many people in the United States knew that fact. And um, because there was so little information about the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War. 
but the uh, so these guys that built rocket engines or nuclear weapons and so forth, those, you know, or, or whoever they were, they would they could possibly get as high as eleven times the base salary if the union and the you know the union would kind of calculate what the what the salary would be for that particular kind of worker. So uh, so. I mean, in any kind of society, I don't care if it's a tribe or if it's a capitalist uh, uh, utopia or a, uh, a Marxist uh, Leninist group, they're, they're, there's going to have to be uh, some inequality. And, uh, and uh, so we're not trying to make everyone equal. Nobody successfully tries to do that. Everyone eventually learns the lesson that people are different. Um, when people at different levels are kind of blended together uh, too much, you can have psychological problems. You can have, uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, uh, you know, like uh, pe people, people envy. You can have people envying others. You know, they don't think they deserve their position. Or you can have uh, imposter syndrome and things like that. So, uh, uh, so, so uh, to have a healthy society, people should be able to achieve what they can achieve. If you want to give your money to a charity, or if you want to give your money to uh, to uh, to your you know idiot son or daughter, that 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 should be okay. I mean, it's just the way the cookie crumbles. I'm sorry. Next. Thanks, Jim, and th thanks for sharing that that fact about the Soviet Union. I, I didn't know that, so learn something new. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. So I know we have uh, coming up next. I know we have um, definitely DLJ, Marco, and then Anton. I, I wasn't sure if you actually had something for this one, or if that was still your hand raised from the last question. Yeah, I, I was. I, I mean, I could say something, but I, Marissa might have called on me on purpose. I don't know. I, she might have. <laughs> she might have raised your hand for you. Well, well, we'll, Sorry, we'll do DLJ. Mistake, we'll do Marco, and then Anton. If you yeah. if you do want to say something, you, you can go next. But uh, DLJ will go first. Yep. Cool. Okay. So I've got three comments in uh, based on the three people before me in reverse order. So uh, James mentioned uh, eleven times salary. Um, yeah, looking at the U.S. in particular where you've got the top of an organization with hundreds and hundreds of times more. Um, yeah, <laughs> 11 times seems like, you know, quite reasonable, I think. Um, bear in mind, Marx said, um, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. That's not equality. That's distribution, right? It's not equality, right? So just picking up on that one. Some reassurance maybe for Maritza's comment there um, in terms of tech inheritance and the next generation maybe not having the social tools to go with the technical tools or applying them in the same way in the same principles. Um, the reassurance I think I can give you is that um, our generations were also inheritors. So the previous generations maybe had the same concerns, but we've, we've done all right, haven't we? So maybe the next generations, yeah, okay, maybe not all right, all through, okay. <laughs> and then um, the last comment was on the um, joyous pre pre uh, preamble, or um, you used the term, evol is evolution best served? Is that from the book or is, is, that, is that his term? Yeah, that, that, that's MC's phrase there, is evolution better served by polarization of power or by a reshuffling of power? 
in each generation. Okay, so that's not evolution in the biological sense, presumably, then that's, that's more in terms of improvement, I guess, right? I, I think he's thinking in terms of like a cultural evolution that builds on a biological evolution. Okay, but evolution doesn't care, that's the point, right? So, so the word really is improvement, and that implies some sort of goal, objective, well, his whole argument, sorry, not, not true, but his whole argument in this book is that um, he's going to make the argument that as humans, we need to start consciously controlling the future of evolution, presumably through cultural evolution, but building on what we've learned about, uh, you know, our biological evolution. That, that, right. That's going to be his that, argument. That implies that we need to have some sort of consensus as to a, uh, a goal, mm -hmm. something we want to achieve, right, which evolution, biological evolution doesn't. So um, good luck in reaching consensus on that one, I'm thinking. Well, he, he seen, he's proposing in this chapter that it happens with or without consensus. So the more of us thinking about it consciously, the better shot we have of it being a desired outcome. Yeah, but what's the desired outcome? That's my point, right? Because we have to- Well, there is that. He does not provide that for us. Remember doom and gloom all the way, guys. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. But but in the, the second half of the book, the, the second five chapters, he's that that is the part that's going to be all focused on the future. So I think we're going to see, uh, you know, in more detail there, his view about, uh, you know, what it is that we can, you know, take control of and perhaps, you know, his his ideas for how we can direct the course of evolution and and to what extent consensus might be necessary or not. Uh, to, to But but obviously someone is going to have to have a goal. Um, and we'll see even, you know, what, what his goal might be, so. Well, can, I, can, I, can I break in? I just have one sentence <laughs> that I just read, which yeah. I think explains his point of view. He calls it selection. Uh, when you learn the tune of green sleeves or the way to tie a shoelace or the words of the Declaration of Independence, you are part of the process of selection that transmits memes through time. So, uh, so it's the uh, the idea is that it, it is a little bit unconscious. I mean, in other words, you you decide what you care about, and those things that you care about changes the memes that become transmitted through the through all the social mechanisms, and uh, uh, these these actually uh, replace, in some sense, these replace the genes in human society. The genes are still there, but these supplement that process. Thanks. Thank you for reading that. That is one of my favorite quotes from this book. Um, and I think it just perfect timing. Thank you. DLJ, did you want to add anything to that? Um, or otherwise we'll, we'll go to Marco next. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I just wanted to uh, interject that uh, explanation uh, from the text, uh, the, uh, that uh, this is a kind of like genes plus means mm -hmm. philosophy. And uh, it is, uh, it's not, incredibly formal it is i like i like that aspect it is a kind of uh uh the idea that uh i some of its ideas seem a little bit slanted but uh, I, I do i do like that quote well, i think that's describing the way it is i'm not sure that it's anything radical particularly here because that is what happens right that's uh well memes are a fairly recent uh are a fairly recent uh yeah, word Dawkins yeah, Dawkins, up. right. Dawkins, Dawkins wrote on it extensively, and uh, I don't know if he, even anyone before him 
uh, but it was yeah he came up with the word though he didn't uh, come up with the the notion of mimetic you know cultural transfer right? i mean that's been going on forever and it's a case of who are the most powerful influencers to get their consensus across by might is right or by whichever parliamentary means or whatever presumably those um those people you know didn't have the perspective of understanding how biological evolution works uh, you know and perhaps being able to i mean i think that that's what we're going to see mc ultimately is going to want to advocate is you know now that we actually you know have reached this level of scientific knowledge and understanding of you know with a certain understanding of biological evolution how can we build on that consciously with cultural evolution and he's obviously going to tie in the ideas of flow um but i think we have yet to see exactly what he's going to put forward exactly as you know goals and maybe even a, a program or a strategy that, that, that that's what i think or at least i'm hoping is going to come up in the second half of this book after we get past a doom well, and gloom getting, <laughs> like social engineering so i'm getting nervous now I mean, my sense is it's not going to be that just because that doesn't strike me as being consistent with his views about flow. But as I said, I'm reading this book along with you. So we're, we're all going to find out what it is that he, he ultimately thinks. Uh, let, let's go to Marco, though. I want to make sure we, we give a chance to, for Marco and then Anton, if he wants to add anything. Um, yeah, it was just to like what Maritza was saying about like, you know, I, I definitely agree with like um, and, you know, inheriting and sort of not um um not gaining the strength that made that person like you know gain the wealth you're not really passing that on but I, I but i was also and i agree with that like uh, but i was also thinking like as well like um that you know maybe that person is like you know they're giving over the wealth to create like a better life for that person, you know, for the person receiving the inheritance and just, you know, it doesn't mean that, it, you know, that person can't like, um, you know, gain that, um, that same sort of strength and, you know, it might provide like a better life. It might be, you know, a little bit easier and they might be able to accomplish different things than, um, you know, than the, that person, given the inheritance um, accomplished, then um, yeah, and yeah, it doesn't mean they can, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. No, 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 thank you. Thank you for adding that, Marco. Um, Anton, did you have anything you did want to add? And then it looks like Gretchen might also have something to add unless it was her dog, again, uh, <laughs> raising her hand for her. <laughs> Anton, yeah, I'll, I'll, add, I'll add something. Um, I mean, I, man, I, it's so often, I, I know I say it many times, I have like various thoughts in my head. I feel like for me, it all depends on the type of person you are. It's almost impossible for me to have various thoughts going on in my, and not have various thoughts going on in my head. But yeah, um, uh, I, I agree with a lot and I like a lot of what has already been said. Um, one of the things that I think it was James was saying, which I definitely agree with, uh, uh, well, he might not agree with part of what I'm going to say, but most of what MC is saying, even if it is doom and gloom, and I agree, hopefully we'll get, uh, well, I, I guess there's the second part of the book about solutions. He does give some solutions, but like, I agree with you guys, like it, it's, 
a lot of it, especially this chapter is doom and gloom. So that's one thing. And then also sometimes he says things James was saying that I like don't make sense to me. I don't have to agree with everything that somebody says, but you know, just acknowledging that to myself. But yeah, um, I d it is interesting to think about the way the word memes is used though. Like Maritza pointed out earlier, like my millennial generation, I'm 32 years old. So like <laughs> memes mean something completely different than, cult than memetic information. I've heard that before when I've listened to one or more podcasts, but it's a, it's a completely different usage of the word, which I think I, I can see the difference. But yeah, I, I think like uh, wealth inequality, um, I do agree with what has been said before that I, as I've thought about it, I don't have a problem with inequality in and of itself. It's just, is it to the point that it's, um, people can't live a decent life? You know, the, the impoverished or the lower class can't live a decent life. Uh, otherwise, people can have different levels of wealth or resources, and I don't have a problem with that in and of itself, I've realized over time. Um, there was uh, something else I was thinking about saying related to what has been spoken about. Um, I mean, like, like I said, there, there, there's different things that I was thinking about. Um, I'll just leave it. I'll leave it there. Maybe I'll say it later. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I want to spin off of something Anton said. Actually, um, I want to hear what Gretchen has to say first. Oh, Gretchen. Thank, thank you. Um, and uh, I apologize. I was kicking my dog out and doing some touch training with him. So this one actually was me. Uh, but um, I was just thinking, you know, the doom and gloom and the money. And it's like, you know, there's like, there's a difference between new money and old money. And, you know, um, the history, looking back and seeing, and even genetically, you look back and you see, okay, my parents and my parents' parents, they've all, you know, had the mindset genetically, you kind of inherit maybe that money attitude um but i'm reminded of um just how history you know it changes how, how things will change you know based on history and we don't look back on history enough um not only in our own families and you know that but history as a culture and other cultures and to realize you know that our country is so young compared to all these other cultures and how how the dynamics and the shifts you know have changed um, and they said, I might not be making the lessons, but even like in our own lives, for our own paths. So to me, it's like, okay, we see doom and gloom ahead, you know, and maybe that's what we're seeing. We're actually seeing a reflection of behind. So, but by looking in the rearview mirror, instead of, you know, like my mom's bears, there's those glance in the rearview mirror every once in a while, but keep your eyes on the road ahead. So I guess to me that's the that's the flow for a pattern for my life that I try to succeed as in looking at okay I did this in the past that didn't work or this is what happened or this is what so-and-so did you know in the past and so this is where I need to go as the flow in my future to pursue my dreams pursue my you know what I want anyway so said that may have been said before I was a little distracted and it may be off topic but it's just something you were thinking of and said somebody said made me think of that so sorry thank you Gretchen um I I wanted to say something I, I'm gonna make a quick quick comment about what Gretchen just said then I want to get some uh, I want to piggyback off of Anton's statements quickly um 
So Gretchen, you know, this idea of um, there's a difference between old money and new money, that is a social construct. Money actually is the same, spends the same, looks the same with the exception of different uh, print variations. Um, and it's funny though, because that like totally proves the point here, you know, it's become a social norm to assume that those who come from old money will have a different cultural affect than those who come from new money. But we all accept that as naturally. So it's funny, that's a great example of um, a social meme or cultural meme that we've accepted. So that's, that's awesome. And I, now Anton brought up something, which is the flip side of another piece that's spoken about in this section of the chapter, the idea of passing on inequality in a, instead of an inheritance inequality. When we're talking, you know, we're talking cultural evolution. As we evolve, we're passing on cultural technology, cultural in inheritance, we're also passing along cultural inequalities. And what does that mean? It's pointed out here by MC to us that even though there's no rules against us intermingling with those who are not like ourselves, we tend to hang out with those who are like ourselves. So when you stay in your own circle, your circle is all you see. And you know, all this, um, we're seeing this rear its head very more so now in the social media environment. You're only shown ideas that are similar to yours. And you start to think that that's all that exists out there. As we continue to live in that environment and move forward, that becomes the cultural inheritance that gets left behind. That becomes the new digital memory that's out there. And that's an inequality dependent upon who you are. Um, you know, it's there, you know, it's this thing. If 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 one is not aware that an option exists, does it really exist? So, you know, I say to people, I didn't know. So my 17-year-old self, who was prepping to try to go to college, was not aware that they existed something in school called engineering. I did not know that. I knew of people who worked with wires and did electricity, those were electricians. To me, they made great money, but they worked hard and got really dirty. I didn't know that there was something similar that was more numbers involved. I love numbers, I'm really good with numbers. Had I been aware that that was a potential path for me, I may have opted for it, but I didn't know that existed. And I went to, what I thought were good, you know, my, my parents sacrificed and I went to Catholic schooling. They paid to put me in a better school system. So it's not like I was in some crappy little school. It's just the culture in which I surrounded myself was not one where engineers existed. So I'd never heard of one. I didn't know they exist and I'd never seen it anywhere. So imagine that for a bigger example, amongst bigger groups of people who are existing through life, not knowing about certain things that exist in the world. That's the cautionary tale here. To me, that's, that's the danger of this transmission of inequality. It's not necessarily the malicious transmission. 
that exists too. And that's huge. And we could probably have a whole separate debate on that. But to me, the most chilling and concerning aspects of this cultural inheritance or just cultural feeding of inequality is that it's happening behind the scenes. And our new technologies are making it easier and easier for these types of inequalities to exist behind the scenes. And again, how do we fix that? How do we avoid it? Maybe we gotta get to chapter six to figure it out. Uh, James, thank you for waiting so patiently. I apologize. No, I enjoyed your comment. Uh, the, uh, I just wanted to give an example of uh, uh, this uh, shuffling uh, because I experienced one in my uh, career as a computer, uh, as a uh, software uh, engineer. The, uh, the, this, uh, uh, I worked in a bank, it was a large bank at the time uh, in Los Angeles and uh, called, uh, uh, I don't know, some kind of international bank, now I forget, but uh, they, uh, they uh, first international probably. But they, uh, so they, they uh, had a program of shuffling their managers. So every manager, whether he was in a technical field or a uh, taking care of uh, tellers or the money counters or whatever, uh, all those uh, managers would uh, shuffle. They'd go off. Uh, leave their discipline, whatever that was, their their technical discipline, uh, educational competence, and go off and lead another team of uh, employees uh, every, uh, I guess, every four months or so. And uh, it was called uh, they called it Matrix something, you know. Probably uh, uh, there was uh, you could you could see charts, you know, they'd have charts of where the managers were going next and stuff, and. Um, this was obviously a, uh, a recipe for uh, catastrophe. And uh, the bank uh, made some mistakes uh, financially and they went, uh, they, they started going downhill. They were purchased. Uh, I think uh, there was a consolidation. They, they all, uh, all, the, all the workers went off to live in the desert in Phoenix. And uh, um, it was a, uh, and uh, then and eventually they were e either purchased by another bank or went out of business. I forget which bank uh, they assimilated them. But that, that, I just wanted to mention that, that this, this idea that, uh, is, uh, that you could just shuffle anything you like is so corrupt. And uh, I've seen a real life example of how it uh, is a recipe for disaster. Well, so thank you for sharing that, that personal observation. We have only a little for half an hour left. So I'm going to take us into the next section, which uh, we're, we're moving from predators now to parasites and more just doom and gloom here. So we're talking about parasitic exploitation. And here we're going to be talking about social parasites. So uh, MC says, in terms of social parasitism, to what kind of exploiters are you most likely to be vulnerable? Anonymous bureaucrats who control your taxes and real estate assessments, people who have a delightful way of laughing, flatterers, brokers who promise quick profits, personable workers who fail to deliver on their obligations, shiftless relatives, insensitive friends, egocentric partners. 
how much psychic energy could you save if you immunized yourself better against them? So I think there's even a couple questions here, which is, uh, you know, I, I just love the, the whole list of the wide range of potential uh, social parasites, um, you know, from people who might, you know, parasite off your money, um, you know, or who might even just parasite off of your emotional um, energy. Um, so even just, you know, thinking about who you might be most vulnerable to there. And then even just this question of, um, you know, immunizing yourself against parasites, and how one goes about doing that. My, my guess is it probably, the, the type of immunization probably depends on the type of parasite, but I'm gonna be curious to hear your thoughts here from everyone in the group first. I think it might be a bit like the immune system. So rather, as you say, so, um, rather than immunize ourselves before it happens, I think it's more of a case of, um, of um, gaining immunity, like yeah, once it's happened, right? So it's a uh, yeah, exactly same, getting uh, burned and learning your lesson. Yeah, same way as our body's immune system works, we catch it, catch something, and fight against it, and then we know next time. Right? Yeah. All right, James has something to add to this part of the conversation. James, you're muted. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, yeah, the, the only thing I can say is that uh, the, the thing I wanted to say is that just people, you have to have a different strategy depending on the kind of um, uh, person uh, that you're trying to protect against. So uh, anonymous bureaucrats uh, don't, don't, don't respond to spam emails and stuff like that, you know, obviously. Uh, uh, People who laugh funny, well, that's kind of that's kind of uh, a, a level of tolerance. Some people have a high level of tolerance and a lot of a lot of experience with different personalities. And um, uh, some people have acting skills. You can always uh, act like you uh, don't even are, are are disregarding the funny way someone laughs. Whatever um, flatterers, some people love that. So. Uh, yeah, so it's it's like uh, if you meet a flatterer and you have contempt for flatterers, it's kind of uh, once again, it's just uh, it's a case of like, well, I, I can leave this flattery. I don't care about this flattery. I don't care if I ever meet this person again. But do you want to insult him, or are you just going to act like it's really okay, you know, or uh, just have a uh, invent countermeasures? There's probably good counter counter flattery. Um, strategies that uh, that people can use and so on for all that stuff shiftless relatives you know i have uh, uh one one relative probably that uh uh actually any relative could sort of like be a problem i guess but you know so yeah you do have uh, you can even have relatives that are uh, you have to uh, take measures against not that you have to be un un civil or unrelative that's i guess that's my point you don't have to be if, if you meet someone you don't like, and you might have good reason not to like them, like they're a, uh, they, they abuse women and, uh, you know, they stole money from you and then you found out they abused women, you know, that happened to me in high school. It's just, uh, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, 
it's just uh, something you uh, you learn from and you have to deal with and you can't exclude people. You can have that phone call and say, I'm not going to be looking for you again because uh, I don't like you. You know, you can have that phone call. There's no, no question about that. Um, but uh, and I'm I'm good at handling people that I don't have a relationship to. Uh, frankly, you know, uh, without being uh, without being excessively rude. Normally, I, would, I could even give an explanation unless the person is pushy. And then you explain to the person that you're a pushy person. No one in a business could actually deal with you because they would lose too much time talking to you because you are pushy. I'd like to terminate this conversation. Goodbye. You know, it's a, you just have to deal with different people on different levels. And that's 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 life. I want to say I'm glad I'm not the telemarketer that's getting on the phone with James there, uh, but we'll we'll turn, we'll turn it to Anton next. <laughs> Anton has some comments for this one. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I like. Um, yeah, the way that I tend to think about it is like, uh, like treat everybody with. Uh, I, not, everyone doesn't have the same view of what respect is, but treat everybody, even people I don't like, with a certain basic level of respect. But if I don't like you, then I don't prioritize you. Just if I have to talk with you, if I happen to run into you, then it might happen. I don't know. I, I know I, I walked away for a certain amount of time, so I could just riff off of whatever happens that pops in. But the reason that I raise my hand, though, even though I'm, I'm agreeing with some of what I just heard uh, James saying or part of what he's saying, is I realized what it was that I forgot earlier that, that I wanted to say, because we talked about like um being it doesn't have to be wealth but being the child like passing on values and being the child of someone who has plenty of money or or plenty of status um and it reminds me of a podcast that i was listening to there's a quote it's a popular quote but i don't remember it word for word but essentially that that, that there's no great man i guess this could be said about women as well that um, that has a respectable, I know this is not the quote, but the point of it was there's no great man or great woman that has a respectable father. And um, I thought about it as the person on the podcast was describing it and they were describing part of what was talked about earlier, which is that if they're born into money or they're born into a certain amount of privilege, they, um, I won't say it's a guarantee, but there's a good chance that they will be spoiled or they won't be able to appreciate that position. So even if you yourself have values and you want to pass it on to them, I don't have any children. I'm uncertain if I want to have children, but I've thought about like, I've thought about the implications of that. And it's, um, parents are in a difficult position because even if you have wisdom to impart or to pass down there's no guarantee that your son or your daughter is going to listen to it you know um so uh i don't know i i don't want to get i don't know if i'm getting long-winded right now but uh those are some thoughts that i have yeah i just remember what i was going to say earlier yeah well, thanks for sharing anton uh gretchen is up next uh yeah i just wanted to kind of um uh dovetail off of what uh, Anton was saying is, um, you know, I grew up in uh, like upper middle class and um, my parents, you know, they had a decent amount of wealth, but I, they taught me to work. I mean, I had to work for every single penny 
that I ever got um, and um, was raised with a really good work ethic. Uh, and, um, but they were too, you know, but I, the most probably prominent thing I remember is um, my best friend in college, she was not allowed to work through college. Her parents owned all these jewelry stores, very wealthy, um, tennis courts, you know, in their yard and ground pools, the whole deal. And she said to me um, one day, she said, you know, and this, she's got children now, she's got a child, but she said, um, you know, if I ever have children, I'm going to raise them like you were raised, not like I was raised. And that's what she, that's what she was referring to was the work ethic and different stuff like that. So, um, cause she had been given everything. I mean, they had a kitchen they didn't even use. I mean, cause I'm like, Hey, let's make, you know, are you hungry? Yeah, let's make something. She's like, no, 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 we don't use our kitchen. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, no, it's just for show. I'm like, what? so it was really a, a, the most flattering comment, you know, that I received. And I am so grateful that my parents taught me to work for everything I have. And, and it's, it's sad as like the millennial, you know, as this next, I mean, I'm, I'm 50 plus. So, but now it's like the kids I mean, it's like, where is the work ethic? Where is the, you know, uh, um, it's scary to me. What, what, what's going to happen for, you know, our youth and our future? But so anyway, that's it. I wanted to share some of my thoughts on this chapter, uh, on this section. You know, the idea, I mean, parasite, there's a forceful imagery that comes up here. And we're considering it here from a, psychic, a mental perspective, because, you know, we're, we're considering the, the workings of our, our, our consciousness and the consciousness of our societies and our cultures. Um, and I don't think I could paraphrase better than MC, so I'm going to cheat and read you guys a couple lines here from this section from him. First, he tells us that at the psychological level, a parasite is someone who drains another person's psychic energy, not by direct control, but by exploiting a weakness or inattention. So that's fascinating because there are people you would not think of as parasites, that if you consider that definition, they kind of are. And then he says, and he reminds us again, this is, this is one of um, MC's, um, like kind of a pet phrase. So we've heard this before. He says, entropy is the most universal law of nature. It states that complex systems tend to break down, that heat will flow from the warmer to the colder body, that order will decompose into disorder. And he tells us that to set us up for the next little gem that I think is so important. He says, parasites are the living manifestation of entropy. They find ways to attach themselves to more complex organisms and exploit their energy with little effort of their own, often harming or killing their host in the process. And so that's the danger he's warned us about. And, and this here is similar to what he's told us about other negatives or other, other things that we're trying to do to wrangle control over our consciousness. It's so simple as taking the first step being aware. Awareness 
can maybe not solve all our woes, but it, it's definitely that first step to walk us in a direction. And I, I think this one, this section was really good for contemplating things that are taking our attention and sucking a lot of it away from us so that we have less time to devote to things that would be food for our conscious self. Um, and I, I think that it's just hearing his de descriptions of how he presents parasites helps us view it in like, cause you know, you know, James gave us several great examples of, you know, if it's somebody who's pushy, you just don't want to interact with them, but then it's different. Like what if the pushy person is um, your child? Then it gets a little more sticky because you can't just, you know, stop talking to them. But if you're aware that you have this parasite in your life, there's also, he also tells us that it's impossible to separate a parasite, or not impossible, it's sometimes hard to tell the difference between a parasite and a symbiosis type of arrangement. And that's fascinating because I think personally that we find ourselves in many situations where somebody may oscillate between several different things. There may be somebody in your life who's not always a parasite. Maybe they only are occasionally. And if we flip that on the other side, we have to assume that there exist times in our lives where we are a parasitic energy upon someone or several someones in our lives. And isn't that food for thought? Thank you. Oh, thanks for sharing that, Maritza. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up that, that idea because I, I did think that was one of the most insightful parts of this whole chapter um, because I think we're, we're all familiar with the obvious parasites, but, but this idea that you know, parasitism can even come in unconscious ways and that we need to be conscious of that. Uh, you know, and as you're suggesting, not only to protect our own energy from you know, perhaps unintentional parasites who may be preying on us, but even, you know, for, for our own sense of integrity to, to prevent ourselves from becoming parasites on others. Uh, looks like Gretchen had something to add here too. Yeah, this, and I might be off base here, but this is something I, I've been thinking of for a long time. And okay, so professional football or, you know, professional basketball. All right. Um, the predominance of the players you know, tend to be of African descent and especially the really good, you know, and it's like they're beating their bodies up and white owners of these teams are, are like being a parasite to me, to these, to these players and um, using them um, as entertainment, as whatever. And and yet, like you had said, uh, Maritza, sometimes that goes back and forth, you know, where, okay, they get a good salary and everything, but, or if it's a singer, famous singer, um, that's like, or whatever, but then um, they almost seem, I know this is a really weird definition of the word, but almost parasitic on them, as opposed to, but, and, and by comparison, probably parasitic is, is, to me, it's a comparison against okay, how do they treat the rest of the black community? You know, um, so like where they revere football players or artists, you know, um, black artists, but you know, I, I don't know, does that, 
make any sense at all. Um, like where that's coming from, where I think that owners of football teams can be parasitic on, on players. Um, and then, you know, they beat up their bodies, they do all this stuff. And I don't know. I mean, like I said, that might be way off base. Uh, looks like James has a comment on this one. Yeah, I'll just give a quick answer. <laughs> I think uh, I think the uh, I guess I guess the uh, capitalism. I don't know if you're familiar with Karl Marx, but uh, he had this whole theory, which is still around today. It's still taught in the universities. Uh, you know that um, capitalism, because because of profit making, is so strong. <clears throat> With the aid of, uh, you know, the aid of equipment, you can make a lot of profit if you own, uh, if you can get hold of land and run equipment and um, get people to work for you, that your wealth is going to uh, increase exponentially. And uh, the people, his theory was that the people uh, that uh, were working for you would tend to become poorer because you would extract wealth directly from them. And most, a, a lot of economists don't agree with that now. They say that uh, even at the lowest levels, people always do better than people at the lowest levels did before. Their work is easier now. Uh, they, they used to work in a ditch. Now they work at McDonald's. Um, they make more money than the people their grandparents, your, you know, that that worked in a ditch or whatever. So, so the the idea is that uh, the the society uh, improves generally economically instead of uh, uh, always at the expense of the people on the bottom rung. Now, the basket, the professional basketball team is a very apt example because. Uh, I, I went to a game with the Lakers, uh, a Lakers game once after, and as I was a fan, I was watching it all the time on TV, but I went to a Lakers game and some people invited me down to their box seat, which was on the end of the floor. And watching this team uh, back in the, I guess it was in the eighties, uh, but uh, about 1982, something like that. But I was watching this team and they, they would run like, uh, uh, the only thing you can compare it to is horses. They would, the, the, the noise was incredible. There would be five guys, uh, at, at least four, but maybe five guys running down the floor uh, like sprinters on every play. This is in the third quarter. They did this for one quarter. This was their strategy, is that they were overwhelmed. They would play a losing game through the first two quarters for the first half. And then in the third quarter, while they were still well and fresh, they would, they would uh, sprint for a large percentage of that third quarter. And the noise was horrendous because you could hear them pounding their legs against the wooden floors, just like you said. Uh, so, so is this wrong? Well, some of these players make 10 million bucks a year, right? So, and they have very, very, very large houses with waterfalls and fountains in front and all that sort of thing. 
So it's not exactly on the level of um, Karl, Karl Marx exploitation, um, even if later in life they do have a limp. They might even still be working for a for another basketball team. Uh, one of those Lakers uh, was was a permanent member of the uh, corporate corporate board of the Lakers. Following his one of them became a general manager. Uh, he was a white guy, but the uh, but one of the black guys um, became a uh, became a like a board member and a, 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 per, a trainer a permanent trainer for the organization, even though as an older man, he was limping. So uh, yeah, it's a tough job, but the uh, the pay is extremely high. And uh, they're no, to, to my, my imagination, they're no worse than any other corporate leader that makes millions and millions of dollars and pays many, many people inferior wages. And even, perhaps exploits women, as we know some corporations have done. Oh, thanks for sharing your perspective there, James. And James, um, maybe you can take a look at um, the microphone on your end, because all of us hear this weird typing noise when you're speaking, even though we can very clearly see your hands moving and that you're, okay. you're not I'll typing. So see if I've got something going on. I yeah, don't I'm think not so. I'm sure what that is. But uh, Anton is going to be up next uh, to, to add to this conversation. Yeah, there's um, I, I'm definitely going to give like a synopsis of, of different things that I'm thinking of right now. And I will say like, um, I'm thinking about some of what Gretchen was just saying. Uh, my perspective is not the average perspective, but this is what my perspective is. So uh, some of this has already been touched on what James was saying, and, and some of what um, Gretchen was saying as well. So um, there's like, at least a couple of things going on simultaneously where, and I, I might not be saying anything that different than James, but I, I guess I'll, I'll add something in and that like, on one hand, there's, we could even talk about the concept of good and bad because like, uh, I mean, that's a topic in and of itself. There's at least a few different, like what we conceptualize as good, what we conceptualize as bad. So for example, uh, with like um, black athletes or minority athletes that are exceptions uh, in the NBA, in the NFL or whatever, um, the fact that they get as much money as they get and the fact that they're in a position that they're in is good in certain ways. But um, there are it, it depends on what the person's intention, like like any owners or anyone who's entertained by them. It all depends on what their intention is or what their perception is. Like if they're only good so long as they're entertaining, then that's a problem. Like, okay, they're the exception. It's so long as they entertain us, they're fine. Nothing wrong with appreciation or with money or status in and of itself. Uh, that's what I would say. But there are other things attached to that. Uh, one of the things we're, I'm reminded of is meritocracy. I, I was talking about in a, a prior group, which is um, sounds good on paper. Is like a good idea that you are awarded according to your competency. But I think so. That's the good or good thing about meritocracy. But the bad thing is that those who aren't able to do the same or who are poor or less fortunate a lot of times, maybe this is not inherent to the perspective, but it often happens, I think, in our society that 
oh, well, it's your fault or, or you're laughed at or you're looked down on. So those are problems in that way. And, and they are class issues. <laughs> so um, purposely, I know there could be more that could be said about this. So I'm tying a lot into a short uh, nutshell right here. So that's what I have to say. You know, I find um, uh, that concept of a merit-based um, society to be a fascinating um, thought experiment. And because, so it's it's a very hard line and, and um, Anton, you and I would be in a slightly, um, you know, we would be in, we, sh we share a common concern in this country. I I'm assuming you're in the United States? Okay, so we share this thing where despite or regardless how credentialed we are, how many degrees we assume, how much experience we have, how many languages we learn, how many things and certificates we learn, we walk through this country not truly ever knowing if we get a job because they needed to fill a space with a brown person. And I understand that I look very pale on camera here. It's the lighting and lack of sun, it's winter. But um, so, you know, I am of the set, I am a Puerto Rican, so I, I identify as a brown person. And the, it is a little bit saddening if I take the time to think about it, and we're a little off topic, I apologize. But the idea of the fact that there are laws that require companies to place specific number of brown bodies. Now, this law has become a societal norm because it was necessary, it was vital, vital to stop people from discriminating against brown folk. But everything that even, that was a great intention, right? So now there's the flip side that has a potential negative side effect of a brown person wondering whether or not they truly got the job based on merit or because society dictated that that company needed a body of that specific type. Um, and I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of small. So, um, it's, you know, it's, it's not that huge of a, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not a huge thing, but it is something to think about. And, you know, merit um, just comes to play for me. Cause I, and again, I think we're getting off topic. I, I should wrangle us back in as the, one of the mediators, huh? But, but it is, a, it's an idea. Um, so guys, uh, Joya is having an unstable connection. So I get to bring you guys home. Um, so that's all I'm going to say on the idea of merit that, but I think that that's, that ties us into what I think the, ba the basic point that we're getting from this chapter is when you look at something, turn it over on all corners because there's probably an aspect of it that you should be aware is either detrimental to your psychic energy or someone else's psychic energy or the culture's psychic energy in general. If we, if we are going to be the ones to foster a positive cultural inheritance, awareness of where all of these predators and parasites live within us is the place to start, right? So we have just a few minutes. So I'm, instead of moving us towards um, anything else, we've pretty much talked about these topics. I have one, thing I do want to leave you guys with, but first I want to open the floor one more time to anybody who just has to get another comment on anything. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation today. 
I, I think that um, Joya and I going rogue for this chapter was really the way to go because we had a far more robust and in-depth conversation than we possibly could have had if we had just followed the structure of the book. So, um, all right, anybody have a last two seconds? Go ahead, Sharon. Okay, I am gonna comment on your comment about the meritocracy because just to flip it on another side, I find in my experience that um, individuals who are hired because of filling a quota have to be far more qualified and bring much more to the table just to be considered. Oh, fascinating. Thank you. Okay, that feels good to know. I appreciate that. Thank you. Oops, I muted. Uh, so Joya, I was opening up folks to last um, two second comments. Did you have a stable enough conversation that you, I mean, connection that you wanted to throw in your last two cents? I'm not sure, so I'll just let you close everything out here. All right, okay, folks. So I wanna remind you guys that um, 52 Living Ideas has many great discussions coming up, um, you know, to, tonight. He's doing uh, the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, and today is chapter nine, part three. Um, tomorrow will be um, the, um, the Gita again. He's going to do chapter nine, part three. Oh, is he doing it last Thursday? Ha, sorry, I had to scroll down to find Friday. Apologies. Um, I know it's the Gita, ah, chapter 10, part one. There you go. And um, if you guys are not finding my voice grading or joyous, both Joya and I lead, or, or we are panelists on the discussion that happens on Saturdays at 2 p.m. Eastern time. We are closing it out, but we have been doing a very in-depth dive um, into Ayn Rand's philosophy via the Fountainhead. Um, and so that those are just a couple of things coming down. We look forward to seeing you guys. I am going to leave you with a quote from the book. And this is, you know, words of wisdom from MC. The point is not to be browbeaten into the belief that you are powerless. It is in the interest of those who control our energy to make it seem that the status quo is natural, right, and impossible to change. It is in our interest to figure out that this is not always true. Thank you guys for a lovely evening, for sharing this uh, time with us. Next week, we're gonna go into memes versus genes and um, should be interesting. Hopefully it's not as doom and gloom as today's, but um, if so, we'll slug it out together. And um, I wish you guys a great weekend. Take care. Thank you all. Bye-bye. This episode may be done, but you can always find more travel ideas and opportunities at Delve Travel. Just visit delvetravel.com. The adventure continues. Ask me why.